Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I want to talk today about the state of libertarianism in the COVID era, pandemic era, post-pandemic, if we ever get there, era. And I know nobody else that's a friend of mine who is capable of talking about this, none other than Chris Williams, who happens to be the producer, editor, audio ninja of this show and of like the Tom Wood show. And I think, Chris, you do Bob Murphy's show and a handful of others. And you, you listen to podcasts a lot from a variety of different perspectives. You're very much in tune with the libertarian movement and what's going on. And you're, you've set me straight on a few things that I've called you about before in the past and be like, oh, I'm thinking, what about this? And you're like, no, 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 no. So you're very much enlightened on the uh, on what's going on. So I want to chat with you, and I appreciate you coming on to uh, talk with me. Well, thanks for having me. I think that's way too high praise in, in multiple <laughs> categories. I'll do my best here. And I, I can't forget about my team at Podsworth, or they won't forgive me because they'll probably be working on this too. So I, I have a team. It isn't just me because we do like 30 episodes a week these days on average for all of our clients. So nice. yeah, if I didn't have a team, it wouldn't survive. It wouldn't be this way at all. So <laughs> thank goodness. You wouldn't have time to do this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't anyway, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's a good thing that we just know how to chat and we've, we've had plenty of conversations because at least it feels more natural than uh, strictly work, I guess. That's right. So my year has been very occupied with a personal project in my life, and there have been a number of things about the liberty movement that has been happening. We've just, I want to say the word survived the 2020 election, but I don't even know if we've survived it yet because we're still, you know, wrestling with the ramifications or struggling under the ramifications of the outcome. And so there's just been a lot of things happen in the past year and a half with COVID, with the election in 2020, with a number of things happening in this year. The news media is becoming increasingly onerous. The social media networks are become, are cracking down on voices they don't want to be heard. And libertarians of all stripes are reacting in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And there's all the like the stuff regarding COVID, there's the stuff regarding like, how do we move forward in politics? So there's a lot that we could talk about. And I know you and I have kind of, you know, talked a little bit off air about, you know, like how we can take this conversation. Although I will mention, this is probably one of the few episodes I didn't take any notes and didn't, I don't have an outline. So this is totally free form, <laughs> um, but I think we can handle it. What do you see? I mean, I want to start back at like the reaction regarding COVID. What were the ways in which most libertarians or many libertarians sort of reacted? I mean, it kind of went a couple different ways. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, I personally saw amongst self-proclaimed libertarians everything from just caution and not wanting to say anything about it because, oh, maybe this is going to be an absolutely horrible, unprecedented pandemic and millions and millions of people are going to die. You know, honestly, I mean, I think caution at the beginning was probably the most prudent 
course of action. And I was definitely not mouthing off about anything myself for several months, just wanting to see how things went down and and kind of just well that's a pretty that's a pretty like good faith and semi-scientific approach it's like we don't know what we're gonna do here and so let's try to react and see what happens and then react differently for sure i mean i even i was against lockdowns the whole time but i'm like well shoot i mean two weeks isn't the worst thing in the world it became forever but right so i definitely saw a lot of that i Definitely saw a lot of people just early on coming out. Well, regardless of how bad the virus is, we definitely need to be stalwart defenders of liberty. And mm-hmm. and that's always been my mentality. Like, even if there is some really horrible thing that would cause the vast majority of the public to clamor for more authoritarianism and, yeah. and oh, government needs to come in and solve our problems, then, you know, we should still stick to our guns, stick to our principles and just stand for the truth and, you know, not let our liberty deteriorate when some bad thing comes around the corner. But of course, as we both know, everything turned out to be pretty overblown. And I know from our off-air conversations, uh, we both know people that definitely had a rough go of COVID, but we know a lot more people that, uh, like myself personally, just had it and got over it. And I'm definitely no specimen of health. Uh, (laughs) I sit at a desk 70 hours a week working on podcasts. So I'm overweight. I have a history of asthma. I was sick for two weeks and had a lingering cough for a few more, but you know, didn't go to the hospital or anything. Yeah. You know, anecdotally also, I've got a great aunt and great uncle on my mom's side who are in their mid to late nineties Uh, I think 95 and 96 respectively. And they got COVID and got over it in about two weeks, didn't go to the hospital either. So, you know, overall, and, you know, looking at the nationwide and worldwide numbers, we know that the survival is just overwhelming. Yeah. And even the hospitalization rates, let alone people that actually die of it, but the, the hospitalization rates are pretty low too, especially if you're under 50. I think it's like 0.7% worldwide. Right. So, and and we've seen so much authoritarianism come in, even with huge, huge swaths of the public opposing government overreach. So it's been, you know, probably worse than any of us libertarians would have anticipated unless it had been like the bubonic plague. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting to see just how things have broken down. It's been more interesting to see how a lot of so-called libertarians have uh, completely crumbled and abandoned their principles and <laughs> turned to justifying the state's actions and trying to make a pseudo-libertarian-ish case for it. Like, uh, a couple of folks over at the Cato Institute, which I'm happy to call out. Uh, <laughs> we we can call out we can call out particular errors. I suppose that's not a problem here, as yep. much as we can praise them for other things. You know, I you know you're right. It's interesting. I had a, a there was a friend of mine on Facebook. You know, did one of those look people vaccines work, and then there's an accompanying graphic, right? that supposedly proves what she has to say. And I'm not here to make mm-hmm. a statement about vaccines, but the the point here in, in illustrating this is that she made this paragraph statement. And then in a comment, she's like, look, I'm a libertarian, but I believe in public health. 
Now, uh, first of all, I didn't know she was a libertarian. I mean, there's nothing per se that I saw about how she presented herself online that made me think she was a libertarian. But it's just funny that people are like, oh, I believe in liberty, but I believe in health over this, you know? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the common person who's attracted to like a freedom mindset wants to do that. And I don't know if it's like virtue signaling or if it's like they truly believe it. Oh, she's in nursing, I should add. Oh. Um, so like there is there is a there there is a firsthand experience of the phenomenon in the last 18 months for her. Mm -hmm. So I mean I I wouldn't say that makes her an expert on whether or not vaccines work, but it does it's it's more than just the random person online being like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna say what the government says or whatever. Right. Well I wanted to interject um as far as people in the healthcare profession go, I mean, my wife is an RN and is in the administrative side of things at her hospital now and gets to see a lot of aggregate numbers and do analysis on that data and stuff like that. We have a ton of friends, especially in our small group at church, who work in the healthcare profession and just, it's like we're surrounded by healthcare people. Our new neighborhood, because we just moved a couple months ago, has a ton of healthcare workers too. But mm. all in all, it's interesting to see how many of them are actually very hesitant about the vaccine. My wife and I have never at all been remotely anti-vax. Like my wife used to love getting into arguments with anti-vaxxers <laughs> and I would cheer her on and occasionally contribute this or that. The traditional anti-vaxxers, like the pre-COVID type of anti-vaxxer, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the, the type of people that in general, think all vaccines are at least potentially dangerous or unnecessary. Like you don't need any vaccines. Like don't vaccinate your kids against whooping cough and polio. <laughs> like right, those types you know, of people. Those types of people, exactly. Yeah. And vaccines that have been around many decades plus, especially for really horrifying, debilitating life-ending or life-altering diseases, those vaccines are very necessary and important. And we're seeing all sorts of weird resurgences of those horrible diseases because of the crunchy anti-vaxxer types. But anyway, so you get our stance on that. But like we are pretty hesitant about the COVID vaccine. And there's a lot of people just like us that have never been anti-vax and are honestly pretty pro-vax in general and are very hesitant about the COVID vaccines because they were just yeah. jammed through and rushed out with a lot less oversight than usual, thanks to Donald Trump, of course, which, you know, the left... Uh, totally forgot. Yeah, they were like, oh, I'm not taking that horrible Trump vaccine. That thing's going to be a disaster. <laughs> people are going to be dying left and right. You know, there, there were tons of people acting like oh, that. And then, you know, now it's Biden's vaccine. Oh and my gosh, yeah. You're a complete tinfoil hat, Alex Jones following loon. And not to speak ill of Alex Jones, I think he's actually turned out to be right on a lot more things, <laughs> which I probably would have laughed at myself saying that a, a few years back. But anyway, uh, the point is, it's just funny to see how things have changed. COVID has brought out the actual crazies in government too. Not just like the crazies that we talk about with the tinfoil hats. Like, yeah, it has revealed so much about how politicians and especially the left have wanted to seize upon a moment that they could control people. Yes. Sorry, that's not really what this conversation is about. No, but like, that's, you're, no, you're that's totally right. a huge point. Though, yeah, of course. Yeah. 
So uh, we were talking about libertarians' response to COVID. You know, I think early on, you're right. You were saying that the response was like, okay, let's just see what happens here. And as the longer you go on through the pandemic, it's like, okay, wait a second. Now we know from many studies that wiping everything down with hand sanitizer and antiseptic wipes or whatever they're called, or antibacterial wipes and all that is like not going to prevent COVID. Oh, and it's it's actually negative. It's, well, it's bad overall because it creates resistant bacteria I know. over time. And this is how we ended up with all these horrible hospital-borne diseases like MRSA, which my wife would love to talk about. I'm sure she should be on here. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you disinfect everything like uh, Howard Hughes, you're going to end up with crazy new bacteria that didn't exist you know, yeah. a couple of years prior. And who knows what can happen? I mean, things just get worse and worse because that's natural selection. That's the way it works. Not to yeah. trigger any young earth no, creationists that might be listening. Or they anything, can remain but, triggered. They yeah. know that that's not what we, <laughs> they, they know that that's not what the purpose of that point was. So like, as the pandemic went on, we learned more and more things, but the changes weren't comporting with that. The fear in mass hysteria was like, just stayed the same. It was like, we're going to keep wiping things down. And I'm like, really? Like, okay, I get the general like, oh, okay, we should all have washed our hands more often than we did. Everybody knows that people didn't wash their hands before COVID when they went to the bathroom. Okay, like there, th sorry, that there was a, a certain number of people who walk out of the bathroom having not washed their hands. Whereas now that number is probably smaller. Okay, fine, mm -hmm. whatever. That's a small benefit. But like, we didn't learn. And I think that the fact that this all became political turned our eyes toward, well, what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. Not particularly the pandemic, because at some point, mask mandates were somewhat lifted. Lockdowns were somewhat lifted. We're not even, I mean, we're, my goodness, we're near the end of 2021 and we're not even like fully open in any real sense. And well, and, at least where you live. <laughs> well, fair enough. You're in Texas. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I, I, you know, I can't brag on Texas I mean, too but much here's what, because... But, yeah, no, yeah. I get it. But here's what I wanted to say, though. Like, at some point in early 2021, most people I know, even here in Pennsylvania, just moved on with their lives. Mm -hmm. Like, we're wrestling with supply chain shortages, like literally something very important to a personal project that I was waiting on. We ordered in early July, held up a huge part of the project, is now only getting delivered next week, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, the week that this will air, actually. So it's like... It, it's just so much, so many issues. There's ships in the canals, right? Or in, well, stuck in the canals and then at port and at sea. And like, there's just mm -hmm. so much just there. And everyone's just trying to get on with the, along with their lives. I mentioned this in a previous episode at some point that I, I walk around, I go to stores. I don't mask. There was a week where I might've had COVID and I decided to mask when I had to go places because I couldn't mm -hmm. completely quarantine. So I stayed my distance and I masked just to be whatever, safe, mm -hmm. courteous, whatever. And it, people don't know why I'm doing it. But no one, when I go in places and I'm not wearing a mask, no one looks at me like, what are you not, what are you doing, man? Like, I've never had somebody look at me like, why aren't you wearing a mask? And that's in here in Pennsylvania where it's a, where I live is a pretty good mix of people who are like left and right. Mm. Um, it's around 50-50. It's kind of a swing county, if you will. You know, depends on the election. Right. So, yeah, people are just trying to move on with their lives. And, but there's been a politicization of what do we do to move on, mm -hmm. right? And who do we look to for leadership? 
you know, the, the reaction to the mandates. I mean, I know people who have literally never worn a mask. They found places to go to buy their groceries, to do the things that they need to do. And they're like, yeah, I've never worn a mask. Right. And I'm like, really? Like, I just can't do that. Maybe I'm a bad libertarian or a bad anti-authoritarian, <laughs> but like, I don't know. I'm just like, yeah, okay, I'll put on the mask or whatever. It's, you know, I don't know. It's just like meat sacrifice to idols. It's like, all right, fine. If that's, if you think this is going to keep you safe from me wearing a mask, like I, I just need to go in and get my groceries, man. Right, right. Anyway, I don't even know if that's, that's way off topic or whatever, but like the libertarian response to the politicization has been eye-opening to me because I have seen libertarians on both sides. Definitely. Yeah. I don't I think know if you have any comments on all that. For sure. I think the response has been varied. You know, I think that's primarily broken down along the red pilled, blue pilled lines. Like the people that are still wearing masks at this point that call themselves libertarian are are very blue pilled for sure. They're yeah. just doing whatever they can to virtue signal that I'm reasonable and I just want to get along and hey, establishment folks, look at me. I'm not ruffling feathers. I'm I'm doing what I have to do, you know, to yeah. appease you. And I, fortunately, People I People like me that I just described. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I mean, like if you wear a mask into a store that's just plastered with, we require masks, you know, or we'll kick you out if you don't have a mask yeah, right. on or whatever. And, and you can't really avoid going in there, whatever. I get it. Like I've done that for sure. Yeah. I just mean that the people that call themselves libertarian and still wear a mask in general when they don't have to. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean like while they're jogging to the store. <laughs> I haven't seen too much of that around here, fortunately. Oh but dude, I've seen people. Yeah. It seems to be more people in the DC beltway and yeah. in New York and California. Uh, fortunately though, I think the remaining libertarians there, however few are left, tend not to be of that variety. I, I should say for New York and California, but yeah, the ones okay. in DC are the ones that are interested in appealing to the establishment because they're trying to yeah. get their think tank more money by looking reasonable to the people with all the power and the money. So, yeah. But, you know, aside from that, uh, there's definitely been libertarians or, you know, in air quotes, so-called libertarians <laughs> trying to justify vaccine mandates and yeah. justify the vaccine passports. I mean, fortunately, I haven't seen anybody talking about like the face recognition stuff and the kind of tracking. Like biometric stuff. Yeah, the, the tracking stuff coming from China that like Raytheon is trying to push you know, I, I haven't seen any so-called libertarians getting behind that, but I'm sure there will be some at some point since, I mean, if, if you're going to go as far as trying to make a libertarian justification for vaccine mandates, like some Cato Institute folks, then, I mean, yeah. I can't really even call you a libertarian. Like you just call yourself that and it's basically meaningless at this point. Yeah. Because that's the most authoritarian and most important issue i think developing right now and you're going to be that wrong on it when it so obviously violates the non-aggression principle which is the core issue of libertarianism i mean and this kind of brings us around to something relevant to the conversation that we were hoping to talk about which is 
essentials versus non-essentials. Right. Because, you know, since COVID especially, I've seen a lot of fragmentation in the libertarian space or just the the liberty space because now we have kind of this post-libertarian movement happening of people. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a phrase that you used with me on, in our text thread that yeah. I was like, wait, what? I, I didn't hear that. And, and before you jump into that, I do want to pause for a second on this and say I was only introduced, I think 2019, uh, with Michael Malice's book, The New Right, with the concept of red-pilled versus blue-pilled. Yeah. And so I know that there might be listeners out there who are like, well, I think I know what that means, but maybe you can sort of shed light on it for those who might, that might be a new term. Right. I mean, the core concept is just, if you're red-pilled, your eyes have been open to reality. If you're blue-pilled, you're still kind of living in the Matrix. You know, it comes from the Matrix, of course. The documentary, um, The Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it applies to a lot of specific issues. I mean, probably the biggest one would just be understanding that mass media at large is lying to you. Everybody has an agenda, but the corporate press in particular, the establishment press, are all giving you either just the typical right-wing establishment, meaning somewhere between Mitt Romney and Mitch McConnell. I don't know. It's a very, very narrow space. You might say it fits on a three-by-five card. You might say that, indeed. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and the other half of the three-by-five card there, the left half is your neoliberal kind of Hillary Clinton type. And then maybe... I don't know. It certainly ends before you get to old Bernie Sanders, but maybe it includes recent Bernie Sanders. So yeah, okay. <laughs> somewhere gotcha. in there. Uh, obviously, the, the left half has a little more actual left to it than the right half has actual right to it. Uh, but that's the three by five card. It's pretty small. Yeah, okay. And we tend to make more room on the card for the left for some reason. So, so being blue-pilled means you sort of accept the reality you're given and you, know, you either, I want to say, work within it, but you don't get to be open to or have chosen not to be open to, or whatever. I mean, and figure out the wording there, but to what what's really going on, if you will. Yeah, well, you yeah. just reject out of hand anything that doesn't fit on the three-by-five card. That's what I would say is blue-pilled. So, I mean, it might not be correct, sure. but how you react to someone saying 9-11 was an inside job probably illustrates if you at least lean more red-pilled or blue-pilled. Like, personally, I have a more nuanced opinion on that, which we don't even have to get into, but I don't think it was orchestrated by the U.S. government. I just think they, yeah. you know, some people knew about it and let it happen ultimately. But anyway. Yeah, we, we can have that conversation differently <laughs> when I'm not trying to publish this on YouTube. Exactly. So, <laughs> but if you react to the statement, 9-11 was an inside job, with just disgust and horror and, oh my gosh, you complete psycho. Yeah. We can't be friends anymore. We can't talk anymore. Well, which is, I'm ostracizing you. Then you're blue-pilled. You're very blue-pilled. <laughs> okay, so, and and you can, I can see how that that particular example in, is indicative that a Republican, like God and country, patriot, rah-rah, kill the terrorist Republican, 
is also blue pilled. So it's not really exactly. related to the exactly blue Democrats and red Republicans, that kind of thing. It's not related to that. Right. It's, it's really just the pills in the matrix movie that we, that we use as to illustrate what that means. So exactly right now, the narrative is very much in favor of a certain direction of people being compliant by the way, which which reveals, you said that, you know, when you make a libertarian argument for vaccine mandates, usually it just abandons one of the first principles of methodological individualism, right? Like, it's not just that you're abandoning the non-aggression principle, you're now sort of eliminating the concept of the individual in your mentality about, oh, well, you know, a libertarian can be for a mandate or force vaccines or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, No? Well, yes, I think. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's at all the uh, the core issue. I think it's just a violation of natural rights, which is a violation of the non-aggression principle. So. Well, it is, but you have to, I would say you have to see the individual as an individual in order to say anybody has natural rights. Oh, sure, right. Yeah, right. because... So it, it's coupled together. They're not technically separate things. Understanding the limits of your body, where your body ends and mine begins, that's critical to understanding rights and property. Yeah. And it's all the same ball of wax. Yeah. So the idea of first principles, that's where we were rabbit trailing off, is we were going to talk about the essentials and the non-essentials. And I think that that's where a lot of libertarians will, I would say, start to argue over certain things. And right. there's a perfectly acceptable range of differences of opinion within libertarianism. I think both of us understand that, agree with that. I know that there are some sort of like libertarian purists who are like, no, there's only this way. And if you think any way else, then you're not really a libertarian. And and it depends on their that conversation. But mm-hmm. broadly speaking, and not too broadly speaking, I should say, <laughs> there can be essentials and then non-essentials and some other things. So I think you were going with that train of thought. You can go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's been the most interesting development for me, just working predominantly in the libertarian space with a lot of libertarian and libertarian adjacent clients is just to see how even some of my clients thought processes have changed throughout the kind of COVID era here, which sucks to have to call it an era, but it's becoming that. I mean, who knows how much longer this is going to last. I think an era connotes that it's like longer. So like maybe the, just the, the period of COVID, like, I don't Uh, know. Well, yeah. The COVID authoritarian regime period, the regime will outlast the virus. That's for sure. Uh, Anyway, it's been interesting to see how people's thinking has evolved and just to see the kind of various new ish factions. And maybe these factions kind of always existed and they're just being fleshed out more and people are kind of solidifying in their camp a little more. That could be. Yeah. But I would say beforehand, people in the liberty space we've always argued with each other like crazy. Yeah. You know, that's part of what it means to be a libertarian. I mean, we we care more about principles than the average people. So we're constantly arguing amongst ourselves. But I think now we kind of have this new camp that I would call post-libertarian, which is people largely that I would still call libertarian because they in principle agree with the non-aggression principle and are understanding of property rights. And they're almost all in the Austrian school of economics. Like they all love their Mises and 
Bob Murphy and right. They all got Rothbard ties and Mises yeah. tattoos. Right. No, I get it. And and Mises Institute, you know. But it's interesting because a lot of them are becoming a lot more jaded with politics. And I think yep. that breaks down in two ways. So the post-libertarian camp has within it two kind of sub-camps, which I would call, for one, the wealth, power, and influence camp, which is kind of headed by Jason Stapleton. I mean, that's the name of his podcast, but kind of the guys that run in that orbit as well, like Matt Erickson. And that way of thinking is just that we're not going to affect political change. And you you really don't have a, a chance of affecting political change right. unless you're extremely wealthy, right? Okay. So just work on yourself, get your own house in order, like provide for you and your family and give your kids, if you have them, the best possible upbringing and just do whatever you can to grow wealthy and be a force for good in your immediate community right. uh, just by your personal influence and having resources to help people. And then if you graduate from that level to the you know very wealthy level where I can have lobbying power, I can really pressure politicians now, mm -hmm. then they would say, yeah, go ahead and do that. Uh, if if okay. you if you really have that level of you can buy wealth, influence, yeah, that's what real power is. I mean, you have to have a huge amount of money and influence beforehand to be able to buy political influence. But the wealth, power, and influence, Jason Stapleton crowd would say, "There's nothing wrong with that. Go ahead and do it." You know, hopefully, you agree with us on things, and you're gonna use that influence to advance liberty. Right. But that's ultimately the only strategy because if you just look at reality, you know, especially if you're a libertarian, trying to get involved in politics is a complete waste of time. That that's kind of that camp. So that's why I would call them post-libertarian, and I think they would call themselves that too, because they're not really anti-political, but they would say, Don't waste your time on it unless you're wealthy and influential and you can actually wield some yeah. power in politics. So that that sounds very similar to me, especially the first part, that it sounds very similar to me to the like Anabaptist way of being in the world. It's like, look, do well, live good, follow Christ, and you will spread your life, your love, and win people toward the right way just by your living. You know, bring up your kids in the right way, uh, it isn't necessarily about amassing wealth per se, although many of them have a good work ethic. And so that sort of formula of work hard and save and all that tends to add up to wealth later in life. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds very familiar to me in that regard. And it's like, I've never thought of it as like post-libertarian. I understand why you put it that way. It it seems like a more practical anarchism. Yeah, I mean... Like applied it, applied anarchism in the like we're just going to live as best we can outside the state. Well, right. That's more of agorism, though. I mean, because agorism would say we're going to kind of ignore the state and just do as much as we possibly can to avoid the state, to not interact with the state okay. at all, yeah. if possible. And that would be agorism. And I think they are distinct because agorists would not be in favor of once you've amassed a bunch of wealth 
and influence than trying to wield power over the state. Right. So that's why that's Right. Well, that would be, of course, the main difference. And, you know, it's interesting. I would see that as like, okay, if you have any sense of influence because you have money, it's like, well, why not use that for good? Like, I think I would, I mean, I can kind of align to that a bit and be like, okay, well, that sounds like a good approach. But you're saying there's sort of another sub-camp in the post-libertarian. Oh, yeah. Well, before we get even get into that, because, okay, this this is an interesting nuance. I think a lot of libertarians, aside from agorists, would say, no, it's wrong to wield political power with your wealth and your influence. Because if you get involved in the political process and you start manipulating politicians that are just supposed to be representing the people that elected them, then that's not very libertarian. Like you sound like a statist, right? Mm. And and I think to a degree, Jason Stapleton, I don't want to speak for him or put words in his mouth, but like his orbit, his camp would generally be like, yeah, that's not necessarily that libertarian, but I think that's what you should do. So whatever. <laughs> so so they, they kind of like have that little bit of accept. Well, there's a little bit of, to me, I'm like, well, okay, hang on. That's not, that's not inherently statist. It could be the case that you're influencing in such a way that if you're removing barriers, well, I could put it a different way. Like there were things that Trump did. There were things that Obama did. There were things that Bush did, you know, little things here and there that overall, you know, didn't amass too much that were in the direction of liberty right? Like, I think it was under Obama, they didn't enforce marijuana possession or something along those lines. And it's like, okay, well, if someone figured out how to influence him in that direction through money and funds and campaign donations or whatever, it's like, well, all right, fine, you're a statist, but you've done something to advance liberty in a sort of, like, within the realm that you're capable of. Right. Um, Now, that didn't create lasting change. Lasting change came from more grassroots efforts. Pun intended. Um, <laughs> like around around the country. I mean, the states have basically pushed the envelope in that direction. Right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I can I can kind of see why it's like, oh, all right, you know, we'll let you off the hook with that. Um, so well, it's more of just acknowledging reality is the way that yep, I think they, they would put right. it. They're just saying, look, guys, you libertarians are kind of living in la-la land and you're not acknowledging the real political reality, which is that this is just a power grab. This is just a, yeah. you know, there are no principles here. Everyone's just competing to grab power. And if you don't get in and compete to grab power, you're not going to have any and your ideals are going to just keep being brushed under the rug and fewer and fewer people are going to know anything about it. And, you know, the government's just going to keep being more and more against you. You're just going to have more authoritarianism wielded against you. So you need to jump in there and try to grab power if you have the ability. But see, now this this brings us full circle, actually. I'm now kind of getting to the other side of that split of post-libertarians because, like, I, I don't think it's entirely clear from the Jason Stapleton, Matt Erickson side if they would actually advocate obtaining wealth in order to obtain political influence, they would just say, I mean, no, you obtain wealth. If you find yourself in those shoes, then live it out. Well, yeah, Yeah. but the the point of obtaining wealth is for you and your family. Just like your family is the most precious, important thing. And you just want to raise children to be better people than you are, which is like my personal philosophy on children. Like, 
the whole point of having them is to make people that are better than you, right? Hopefully. So, I mean... For some of us, that's not a very high bar. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it's not 100% clear to me if the wealth, power, influence guys are really advocating grabbing power. They're just saying, like, you can't do it until you've already obtained the wealth and influence in your community. But so, then this other half, which I would call the more Machiavellian half is kind of the let's work within the GOP because the GOP is the only... Only electable alternative. Well, I mean, they're acknowledging the reality that this is an oligarchy, right? Mm -hmm. It's got two parties, but they're both part of the same establishment, ultimately. And within the parties, there are individuals that fall outside of the establishment more so on the right side of this, you know, oligarchy. Sometimes we get a Republican that's kind of a libertarian or at least more liberty friendly. On the left side, it's it's a lot harder. I mean, you occasionally get somebody like Dennis Kucinich or old Bernie Sanders, like an actual communist that falls outside the neoliberal establishment. But anyway, the point is that these more Machiavellian post-libertarians, I think their whole deal is we just need to work within the GOP, take over our local parties, you know, Mm -hmm. at the county level to start and then hopefully eventually at the state level. But regardless of taking over anything, just push candidates that more align with our values within the Republican Party because that's our only option. Yeah. But they tend to be extremely pragmatic and Machiavellian too. Like it's, it's just about like we have to grab whatever power we can to prevent the other side from using that political power against us. So that's why I call them a little more Machiavellian. And, you know, it's primarily represented by Tho Bishop and Andrew from Popular Liberty, Jose Nino and Pedro Gonzalez, who gets on Tucker Carlson periodically. Uh, Guys like that. I mean, although I would say Jose and Pedro are definitely more conservative like Jose was libertarian for a time, I would say. I don't know if Pedro was ever properly a libertarian, maybe just a paleoconservative, but that I would say that because of how many libertarian folks they brush up against, you know, they know their libertarian theory just as well as anybody else. And they're just rejecting it, mm. essentially. They're just saying, no, we have to grab political power. We don't have another choice. And the only way to do that is through the Republican Party. Got it. Got it. So can we talk a little bit about what's going on in the LP, Libertarian Party, a little bit? Because it is a factor in the landscape of what libertarianism is going on. And I'm not assuming you have any sort of inside knowledge or anything like that. But like, there was a huge disappointment in the libertarian candidate that ran, Joe Jorgensen. And uh, lovely as a lady as she seems to be, she did not have the fire of, say, a Dave Smith or... You know, or a Jacob Hornberger, or Jacob Hornberger, my who, candidate that I backed. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean that's. I need to tread lightly on uh, candidate stuff because we're a nonprofit. Well, I guess they're not really candidates, so I guess I can sort of speak freely. But there's just a the fire, the passion behind the movement as a whole, or as uh, the principles of liberty, and it's like, okay, fine, she would have made a better president, right? She would have been a better choice for any role in government, but it wasn't attractive enough. 
and it didn't attract even as much, I think, as Gary Johnson, right? Like, I right. think, yeah. Much so, less. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, fine. There were some wins in certain ways, and okay, fine, whatever. Like, it's not like, it's not like Jacob Hornberger would have won if he were the LP right. candidate. I mean, let's be honest, right? Um, much as the, uh, this is how Gary Johnson could win the 2016 election if this happens, and there's a tie, and then it goes to the whatever. <laughs> it's like, all right. Those are great clickbaity uh, things. We all and know that's not happening. The advertisers love those articles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's like, so, but there is a movement within the Libertarian Party. And I think it just goes by the Mises Caucus, right? And there's a lot of momentum going on there. Absolutely. Well, so here's the interesting thing. I mean, for me personally, I've been on board with the Mises Caucus since their inception. I mean, since before. I was following Michael Heiss before there was a Mises Caucus. And, you know, a lot of the people involved are just great people that, I mean, the entire goal is to take the Libertarian Party over to make it Libertarian again. Because yeah. it hasn't been very Libertarian for, you know, the past 15 years, <laughs> maybe a little longer, maybe the past 20 years. I mean, it's really just become a Beltway Libertarian show. Like, yeah the Cato Institute type crowd, these people that are pretty blue-pilled and just want to look reasonable to the establishment folks in the DC Beltway. Uh Like, so they can get more money for their think tank. I think that's what it comes down to. And there's a lot of people that just want to ingratiate themselves with that crowd to advance their own career just because they they think that's going to get them extra airtime and exposure and potentially support. So I don't know. Okay, but I understand. Yeah. So oh uh, where was I? I got off on a, a, oh, a the, trail. the Mises Caucus Mises making libertarian libertarian. Making yeah. the Libertarian Party libertarian again. Right. Okay. So the Mises Caucus, their mission is to at least wrest control away from those people. Right. Over the Libertarian Party. Right. Because that's the type of folks who have controlled the Libertarian Party for over a decade, you know, 15 years, maybe more. Yeah, cue the Dave Smith, Nick Sarwark debate. Exactly. And Dave Smith is one of my absolute favorite podcasters. I listen to every episode of Part of the Problem. (laughs) My wife listens to every episode of Part of the Problem, usually before me, because I'm working on so many podcasts. So she's telling me how great the episode was, and I'm listening to it, you know, when I go to bed that night or the next day or whatever. So anyway, uh, I love all those people i you know only recently have even remotely entertained some of the criticisms of these people at all because i'm like who would criticize what the mises caucus and michael heiss and and yeah. podcasters like dave smith are doing like they're freaking heroes like who could argue with trying to make this goofy little party you know, that should be easy to take over and fix, one would think. Who could argue with just making it live up to its namesake, right? I mean, so <laughs> I that when people... never thought of it that way before. Easy. It's small enough to take over pretty easily. You would think, right? It's Everybody's joking about how trivial this party is and how irrelevant it is and how yeah, right. libertarians never get elected. So, well, it should be easy for us to take this back over and fix it so that when right. people Google libertarian and the libertarian party pops up, and they read about it because they haven't heard about it before. They're not just misled or, you know, coming across all these clips of goobers that don't know what they're talking about that don't even know the non-aggression principle. 
you know, and are misrepresenting what libertarians believe. Like yeah, that's right. the whole point of the Mises caucus. And yeah. obviously why Dave Smith and Tom Woods support it. And I have completely supported it all along. And only recently have more critics been coming out of the woodwork. And I absolutely blew them off initially. I was just like, what are you talking about? Like these people are great. They're doing no wrong. And I'm watching everything that they're doing and they're not doing anything wrong. Like get out. Why are you trying to call them out? What's wrong with you? But some of the criticisms are potentially valid in terms of just long-term political strategy. Like they would tend to agree that just having the libertarian party actually represent libertarianism is a positive thing. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, that would be nice. But their argument is more, well, how many resources are we pouring into this? Like how much money and how much time, you know, time's the most valuable resource because we can't get it back. How much of that are we pouring into this kind of small, potentially trivial endeavor, right? Mm. I don't think it's trivial. I still don't. Like, I think it's valuable just for the reasons I mentioned already, just right. Googling yep. it. <laughs> uh, yep. But yeah, I mean, it's a valuable point to be made because, I mean, if you're going to sacrifice your entire life to just resting control of this little party back from, losers that took it over and made it mean, you know, something that it wasn't supposed to mean. I mean, that's in the long run, not really going to do a lot for us in terms of advancing liberty. What actually advances liberty are really three things like your own wealth, power, and influence, like Jason Stapleton talks about that advances your own personal liberty more than anything else. Definitely. Secondly, preventing government bloat that affects you like preventing here in Texas, our property taxes from going up like they do every year. And now that I'm a homeowner, you know, I'm already looking at this and, and seeing how ridiculous my property taxes are going to be and mm -hmm. how much they're going to get jacked up constantly every year. I mean, our Georgetown ISD is trying to spend like $400 million worth of bonds for all these projects that they're trying to do. And None of them actually go to anything that I could see would improve actual education. It's all like, we're going to build a sports stadium, you know, a new football stadium. We're going to build an aquatic center, you know, all these like frills. One of them was for getting new computers. And I know how that works. I mean, my mom's a public school teacher. They get new computers every three years and she hates it because she's like, these work great. There's nothing wrong with them. The kids broke maybe one or two of them in this entire three-year period. We have plenty for all the students, and they're just technically considered obsolete now. And our school district has a contract with Dell, so we're getting new computers, and that's that. It's basically just a cronyism thing. So, I mean, anyway, that was a little rant, but that's what affects our liberty is stuff like that. It's making our property taxes go up and making us have less money for our family. Like, it's hard to send yeah. your kid to a private school or have money for one parent to not have to work and homeschool your kids. If the government's taxing you to death, yeah. you know, one of you better make well into the six figures these days. I mean, <laughs> it's going to be seven figures pretty soon with inflation just to afford to homeschool your kids. Oh so <laughs> my gosh. yeah, seriously. Anyway, that's a little rant, but yeah, I mean, the whole thing is how much time should we actually waste on like running libertarian candidates who probably can't win, even if they're awesome and they're just 
night and day drastically better than the Republican or the Democrat that they're running against. Like, is it even worth our time to do that? And ultimately, the reason why I'm not 100% agreed with the post-libertarian camp is I think there's value in messaging still. Like, even knowing 100%, I don't have a chance of winning this, at certain levels, there's definitely value to having a libertarian who can put out counter-messaging, you know, messaging yeah, that's going time. against... Yeah, exactly. I mean, now at certain levels, that's definitely irrelevant and trivial, and it is a waste of time. Like really small local elections, the only point of running there is if you think you can actually win. Like you're not going to get a bunch of airtime. Every, I mean, may, maybe your city council has a debate or something and you can do that. Every two years, I get a letter in the mail because I am registered libertarian. I get a letter in the mail that says if I run for treasurer in my local whatever, that I will be sure to win because no one else is running. <laughs> it's just like, yep. yeah, no, I'm, I'm good, man. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, so let's say you want to be treasurer for your local LP, and then you actually want to run for a public office as well. I mean, you want to run for your city council or whatever. I mean, if it's if it's technically one of those nonpartisan ones, then maybe you actually have a chance of winning, especially if you've already amassed a little bit of wealth and influence in your community, right? Then you might actually get on the city council and be able to do something, sure. But I mean, if you're just running it for messaging, like if you know there's some establishment entrenched people that have been there a long time and you really don't have any hope of ousting them and taking their seat, then, you know, going to the debate, if it's for city council or something, if, if it's not being recorded and put out on YouTube, even if it is, I mean, you might reach a few hundred people with that message, right. your libertarian message. So is that really worth your time? I mean, for some people, maybe, but for most of us, like me, I'm just working myself to death. And it's like, that's all I can focus on right now. Yeah. And hopefully very soon, because of a new product we may be launching very soon, hint, hint, stay tuned. I won't have to work quite as much and we'll have a little bit more free time and ability to uh, devote to spreading the message of liberty and raising my family. And are you, <laughs> you going to come up with like the equivalent of a self-checkout machine for your podcast? <laughs> like it reduces the labor? Maybe that, I don't that, know. that's kind of a kind of an app description, actually. There, Doug. oh man, uh, <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, I don't even actually. So, for listeners' sake, I don't actually know what he's talking about, unless uh, unless I do, and I don't realize that I know what he's talking about. You may uh, be a prophet, <laughs> yeah, or something like that. So, as as we wrap up a little bit, like it, it sounds like you and I are somewhat like okay, we can see value in a handful of approaches to pursuing a more free society, but we're also I mean, you haven't said this, but I know that we've both sort of lamented that we've crossed into territory where it doesn't seem like the state's going to start receding anytime soon. Right. And that that's pretty lamentable. If not, I don't even know what the word is. I'm thinking like it, it rouses our passions to uprise, right? Like there's a lot of people pretty upset because they've lost a lot and it's not been because of a virus. It's been because of the state. And it's been because they've been lied to. They feel as though the left especially looks down on them, which they do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have, I mean, what was, I was watching Bill Maher the other day and he was quoting statistics that like 40% of Biden supporters would accept a national divorce. And it's 40 like 40% of Biden supporters. Yeah. And he was making the, he was making the, the point, you go look it up. He was making the point that like, 
There's a lot of people who are like, yeah, maybe we should just peacefully end this union. I'm stunned it's that many. Well, and again, I mean, I don't... the kind of blue-pilled uh, establishment following type. Well, think about it, Chris. Do you really think they want to be governed with us? I mean, think about it. Well, they want to impose their government on us, right? And that's the reason why this thing is stuck together so long. That's true. Yeah, no, I (laughs) They're so authoritarian that, I mean, the people that are still willingly living in California are are generally (laughs) drinking that Kool-Aid, and they're the type that cannot live with Texas and Florida being free states that don't have vaccine mandates. Like, they're... That makes them super angry. They can't sleep at yeah. night because they're like, how dare they not have mask and vaccine mandates? How dare they? Yeah. Yeah. They're, no, I, I totally get what you mean. And that's why it can be shocking to say, really, 41%? Because don't they want us all to just live by their standards? But I would venture to guess that the average Biden voter is probably not a far lefty. Again, I can't make assumptions too much there, but uh, that's kind of my personal gut check on how that went down, or maybe I'm just, Mm -hmm. you know, not able to cite sources of things I've heard in the past year. But all that to say, the fact that there is a large number of people in America who feel like they've been betrayed, lied to, been treated with contempt. I mean, no matter what you say, if you're right leaning at all, you're a racist. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's just a lot of people are like, I'm out, man. Like, can we can we figure something else out? And sometimes I mean that's really encouraging. It's news to me that that many people more on the left side of things are yeah are seeing that and kind of coming around to that. Yeah, I mean I I don't know. I mean it's very sad to me, and I've I've said this in different contexts, and we can leave this open ended for for a future conversation, either you and me or someone else. But like I have noticed that as soon as you drop your support and preference for free speech, mm-hmm. the game is over. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have speech, you can't have expression. You can't have expression. If you don't have expression, you can't live. I don't mean like in like you can't survive, but you are not living in a flourishing society when people don't value free speech. You can't. Right. It just it right. just won't happen. I mean, I could I realize they're totally tied together. So just take this with like total grain of salt here. I could live in a world without a Second Amendment. I can't live in a world without a First Amendment. Hmm. Well, you literally may not be able to live in a world without a Second Amendment. No, no, I, I, I <laughs> we'll no, see. I, I get that, and 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 again, I'm a very big Second Amendment person. So please don't write me hate mail, people. Um, they do go together. I get it, but like, I can understand where there's a populist who just don't value the ownership of a gun, and so they don't see the value that other people might have in it. But you can't live in a society that can't value free speech, mm-hmm. which I realize, okay, again, they're tied. I get it. But that's kind of where I land on that. Like, I don't own a gun. Um, actually, that's not quite entirely true, but I haven't touched it in a very long time, and I don't even think of myself as a gun owner. But I'm a huge gun rights advocate. I mean, it's not like I'm active. But, like, if someone asks me, I'm like, yes, absolutely. You should have a right to have a gun legally, right? There's no question. I'm hardcore libertarian on that. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know. Maybe it's just the cultural milieu that's like the free speech thing is just really on my mind lately because the last couple of years, like free speech has just gone out the window. Yeah. And it used to be the left that valued it. And the right was kind of like they paid lip service to it, but they were always trying to limit certain types of speech or force certain types of speech or whatever. So anyway, well, I I don't know. I don't want to end on a, on a sour note. So I'll let you. (laughs) 
I mean, this is already running long, I know, but I'm the one that has to edit it. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chris, why, right was my, wing... why was that podcast only 23 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see how long it ends up being. Um, I think an interesting point, though, going off of what you were just talking about, that kind of the post-libertarian crowd might make and certainly the more just right-wing populist crowd that isn't libertarian would make is the biggest infringers on free speech in the last decade have been private companies, you know, mm. Facebook and Twitter and is that air quote private companies or? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in reality, it is air quote private companies, right? Exactly. If you get well, we've seed learned, money, we've learned since that that's even becoming more and more true. Yeah. Yeah. If you, certainly, if you get seed money from the federal government, like Facebook, then yeah, that's all very questionable. How private you are? Um, is that too tinfoil hat? I don't know. Mm. You know, you can still find that on Google. <laughs> no, I mean honestly, like a year ago, that might have been. But then, since we've learned things, right? Like we've learned that there's seed money, and then we've learned that there's been sort of like influence from the Biden administration to Facebook executives. Oh, yeah. So like... Well, they're clamoring yeah. for influence from the government. I it's mean, not half even, the people that work for big tech are the absolute most woke, blue-haired, gender <laughs> goblin folks. So... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Am I going to... I stole that from Jack the Perfume Nationalist, by the way. Credit okay. to him. That's my new favorite term is gender goblin. I love it. Okay. So I, I will leave that up to the listener to go figure out and find what that is. <laughs> you've, you've given them enough information to go down that rabbit hole. So anyway, is there anything else you want to add that we didn't get to or that's worth talking about? Oh, man. All right, so we'll just have to do a sequel maybe. <laughs> I don't want to go on for another hour necessarily. That's the problem because we easily, easily could. Yeah. And I mean, editing myself is going to be a chore and a half and I'm going to hate it. So <laughs> I should probably shut my mouth. I'm just, I'm digging my hole deeper with every nah, word I good. speak. So, <laughs> well, as long as you wear your tinfoil hat while you dig your hole, I guess you'll be safe. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> while you chew on your red pills. <laughs> well, Chris, I appreciate it. You and I always have fun conversations and thankfully we have the luxury of recording them and using them as fuel for, the uh, the fire that we both have for a free society and individuals. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of other conversations in the future. So I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.